I'm William Law, and you're listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today is Dr. Alanoud Al-Sharek. She is the director of Iptikar Strategic Consultancy. Dr. Al-Sharek is an author and academic and an associate fellow at the Chatham House MENA Region Program. Her latest publication is called Love or Country, A Difficult Choice for Women in Kuwait, published by Arabian Humanities. She's speaking to us from Kuwait City, and our conversation today is about the struggle for women's rights in Kuwait and the wider MENA region. Alanoud, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's a pleasure. Now, I, I have to ask you, we are going to get to the uh, fight for women's rights in the Gulf and uh, the wider MENA region, but I do have to ask you about the settlement of the Gulf feud Kuwait played a really important role in securing this, the end to this long, uh, long and really divisive uh, feud that caused a lot of harm. So what are your thoughts? Well, like a lot of people in this part of the world, I'm extremely relieved and happy. Uh, it's been a very uh, tense and sad situation since this started a few years ago. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of the sentiments in Kuwait are uh, especially proud that our country has played uh, a pivotal role in making sure that uh, this crisis uh, uh, is resolved uh, in a friendly and uh, uh, fraternal manner. Uh, and of course, our, our late Emir was instrumental in playing a mediating role between the, the different parties uh, in this crisis. Indeed, he was. Now, in December's election, not a single woman was voted into the Kuwaiti parliament. I know you didn't run yourself, but you're instrumental in putting together an impressive list of female candidates, Madawi list. Tell us, first of all, about the list, how it came together and the women in it. So, uh, Madawi's list came about uh, as a platform to support all women candidates running for elected office, whether in the parliament or outside it. The idea for uh, a platform to support women running for office came about during a training that my consultancy, Tikar, conducted to empower Kuwaiti women in politics called Equip uh, two years ago. But we decided to launch Mudawi's list to coincide with the National Assembly elections uh, and it was co-founded uh, and is run by four brilliant uh, graduates of the EQUIP program and myself, as well as two young researchers who help us highlight both the factual and the historical data on women in political leadership. The idea behind this platform is to connect female candidates with in-kind donation providers and uh, service providers who give them discounted or even free services to support their run for office. And more importantly, it gives them a safe space to promote themselves and their agendas outside of the hypercritical and at times openly hostile coverage uh, in the mainstream media. So Madawi's list, it's a safe place, you're saying, for women to pursue the objective of getting elected. And it's not just to the National Assembly, it could be to various other bodies. Yes, the idea is that we need to support women in the run-up to uh, becoming candidates for National Assembly. 
So the elected positions that are open to women, whether it's running for the student union elections in universities or for the municipality council or on uh, to co-op boards, the boards of sports clubs, NGOs, uh, even in the Chamber of Commerce, all these positions are gateway positions to candidates running for parliament. And all these uh, are unfortunately devoid of uh, successful women uh, candidates. Uh, so what we aim to do is to encourage women running for all elected offices, because we really need to see this happening on all levels in Kuwait. Uh, so that it can translate into a win in the National Assembly. Now, when I spoke to you just, I think it was the day after the election in early December, um, I was a bit surprised, Elinu, because you weren't discouraged, you weren't dismayed, despite the fact no women were elected at all. Why, why, why was that? Well, sadly, Bill, the reality is that these results were expected because women run outside of the mainstream political blocs in Kuwait and therefore they don't have enough access to financing uh, or to the mobilizing voter bases that successful male candidates rely on. Uh, people in Kuwait still vote on tribal, sectarian, religious or um, kinship based lines, all of which do not yet recognize the legitimacy of women as political leaders. Uh, you know, the Arab Barometer survey has actually indicated that there's a significant drop in public support for women's leadership in Kuwait. So you have so social, political, religious, and media rhetoric stacked against you as a female candidate. Having a visible platform that challenges and encourages, like Mubawi's list, is a step in the right direction. And it also negates the, you know, the, the repeated accusation that women don't support women, uh, as if it was solely women who were the problem, or that only women should vote for women, or as if women voters exist outside of the political mainstream. The problem is much wider. If we look at the numbers in the last election, they tell us a very depressing story. Out of over 370,000 voters, 5,000 voted for women. You're talking about less than 1.5% voted for women. So uh, it's not about a grassroots movement. It's not about what women can do for women. This has to be uh, part of a, a much wider holistic intervention by the government and by civil societies and grassroots movements such as Malawi's List to, you know, encourage real change. Now, you mentioned intervention. I mean, quotas are quite controversial. Uh, are quotas the, the solution that there must be a certain percentage of women in, in the National Assembly? Is that is that the way forward? Well, quotas uh, are certainly a viable and a realistic option at this stage. Uh, I know that a lot of uh, women who, who, like me, have been involved in the political space for uh, the past 15 years, you know, and in the beginning when we first got our political rights, they were uh, very uh, skeptical about quotas uh, and, uh, you know, not so supportive of them. But today, having seen that twice 
the Kuwaiti public has uh, elected parliaments with no female representation. In, in 2012, with the four vote system, also no women were elected. And at that time, no women were put in the government either. So at least this time around, we had one woman in the cabinet. Um, so uh, this problem is both insidious and explicit. And, and uh, quotas are used in the region, they're used uh, in the West uh, to normalize uh, women's political presence uh, in positions of leadership and also uh, break the, the cognitive biases and the cognitive recognition barriers against women. So I think at this point, it, it seems like a realistic step. And you know, those who, who worry about um, quotas being uh, kind of unfair or giving an, an advantage uh, to women or, or producing kind of a, a less merit-based approach, they have to understand that the focus shouldn't be just on ad advantage in, in access because it's not a level playing field and clearly it is not organically becoming a more level playing field. What we need to focus on is how unfair the results are and how unrepresentative they are of the population. So um, I, I really think that quotas could be uh, a reasonable solution at this point. And do you think that the government will listen to that proposal? Is that realistic at this point? Well, there, there has been kind of a, a top-level review of electoral processes that happened during uh, the late Emir's uh, last years in Kuwait. And one of the, the gentlemen who was involved uh, in this uh, high-level kind of uh, review process, he suggested several recommendations to amend the electoral law in Kuwait. And one of them was to introduce a 20% quota where uh, there would be a reserve for gender-based representation in each district uh, in a way that wouldn't contradict our constitution, but would would make sure that at least 20% of the seats are reserved for kind of representation in both genders. Uh, so in case in the future, we have a scenario where, where women uh, are elected a lot more than men, we, we can ensure that there'll also be a 20% reserve for male seats. That's an interesting thought, actually, but <laughs> um, that, that, that males' seats would, would need to be reserved. Can you remind me when women uh, secured the right to vote in Kuwait? Uh, we uh, got our full political rights to vote and to run for office and also to be, to be able to be appointed as, as ministers in the government uh, on the 16th of May 2005. Progress is slow, obviously, very slow. Uh, women only got 5,000 votes. I mean, is that discouraging to you? It's not encouraging, <laughs> that's for sure, but it's understandable because you have to understand that the overwhelming rhetoric around the performance of the four women who made it to office in 2009 and the, the two other women that made it besides them since then 
uh, has been hypercritical uh, and uh, you know it it's not really reflective of the the laws that they suggested or their involvement in um, in committees and and uh, you know the, the fact that you know six six women does doesn't create kind of a fair basis for comparison let's start with that or or the the kind of uh, fallacy that 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 the the actions uh, of one woman in in office is representative of the entire gender but there there is this this overwhelming rhetoric negative rhetoric around women's political contribution uh, and the fact that kind of we tried them and uh, they weren't great so now we're just going to vote for men and there's not enough intervention from the the, the government or from uh, other policy makers to um, provide a counter narrative so this is what we are trying to do in Malawi's list but uh, and and certainly other women's groups are trying to do as well but that's not enough we really need some top down initiatives to to make a difference the same top down initiatives that we saw come into play around the lead up to uh, us gaining our full political rights in 2005 what you're speaking of here really is attitudes towards women in the Gulf and the wider Middle East, which can be characterized as patriarchal, patronizing. How tough is it to change the culture and those attitudes? Well, I think uh, these attitudes aren't exclusive to the Gulf or the Arab Middle East. They might just be more explicit in this region. But certainly, if you look at the progress of women in industrialized countries and places where they might have gotten their political rights a long time before us, you, you still see the, the stubborn remnants uh, of uh, centuries of uh, male domination. You still see wage gaps. You still see, you know, uh, not, in, not enough equal access to opportunity, not enough women in boards. And so you have, uh, now quotas being enforced on the boards of the private sector to ensure that that there's enough uh, gender representation in them, uh, even in places like Germany and the U.S. and the U.K., where where you would have thought that years of um, lobbying and, uh, and of women being involved in political leadership and leadership in the private sector would have would have eradicated the need for enforced quotas. So I think that we are still new in embracing truly democratic processes and that uh, many governments in the Gulf, at least, seem to be taking the issue of gender representation seriously and enforcing uh, quotas on um, their uh, policymaking uh, instruments. Uh, whether it's a Shura Council or it's uh, the Federal Council. And we, I mean, the, the need to do that is understandable because as the Kuwaiti experience has demonstrated so far, you know, people aren't comfortable uh, with power sharing. They're not comfortable with uh, systems that are outside of kind of the Diwaniya culture, which is... Uh, uh, very similar to the boys clubs that existed um, 
in the West. And, and this is really where the power networks exist. This is where people get promoted, they get noticed, they get uh, supported. And women are outside of these power circles. So um, we can hope for gradual and incremental change, but, but that, that may, may take centuries. Or we can demand intervention for exponential change. Mm. Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 is pushing hard to advance women and get them into the working economy. And yet at the same time, you have the case of women activists like Lujane El-Hatloul jailed for pushing for women's rights. Clearly, there are red lines. So what is the best way to deal with them? Well, I mean, Saudi Arabia is one of these these places where, you know, you need exponential change just because it was so far behind the rest of the world that it was, you know, at, at some things, uh, you know, uh, like uh, limiting women's mobility it was kind of laughable that in this day and age, women aren't allowed to drive. And, and the justifications, whether they're religious or social, that came with that were unacceptable. Um, but uh, as, as you said, w where we are right now, and especially after the Arab Spring, kind of the, the ceiling for uh, activism and for challenging the status quo has come down considerably. And uh, in a lot of these places, uh, women's uh, I identity and the control guardianship over uh, women is very much intertwined with uh, this the sense of national identity and and uh, mobilizing uh, around women's issues is seen as a threat to uh, kind of uh, the authentic national identity and so it's it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult line uh, for for many women and many activists and and uh, bill you you'd be surprised where the backlash comes from it's it's not only from kind of uh, the the old guard or the conservative aspects or governments that want to control the the narrative uh, and and see progress in terms of uh, government-led empowerment and not so much uh, grassroots-led feminist movements but it, it can also come from liberal groups, people that you would assume would be allies, uh, you know, uh, can be, be a source of agitation for female activists and what they're, they're trying to do. And, and this is something that we faced in, in our work here in Kuwait around uh, honor killings and trying to, um, to lobby for more protection for women. So, so it's very difficult to, to maneuver around so many red lines and so many levels of, of taboo uh, in, in, in the region, especially when it comes to guardianship over women and women's bodies. Yeah, well, I should ask you about your work uh, in the field of honor killings. And, uh, and, and that, that, again, a, a huge issue, one that hasn't received the the publicity, certainly in, in the West, that uh, that it needs. And people may be surprised to learn that it is an issue in, in, in the Gulf region still. Well, uh, I mean, it's it's not receiving enough attention because it is a question of honor. So so even admitting that there is a kind of a, uh, a deviation from uh, the uh, 
expected behaviors uh, is kind of a, a loss of honor or loss of face for many people. But uh, the UAE has just removed the honor killing uh, legislation uh, in its most recent review of, of uh, laws on personal status, etc. And uh, in Kuwait, we're trying to do the same. So we've been lobbying for five years and we just succeeded in August this year of passing a bill in parliament that would provide uh, protection from domestic violence called the Family Protection Act. Uh, and uh, we're still facing resistance when it comes to the honor killing legislation. And uh, over the past year, we've seen a, a recurrence of acts of violence and murder against uh, sisters by their brothers. And, and the idea of, of honor has become really plastic and really wide. So it, it would include things like marrying uh, outside of the sibling's consent, even if they have uh, parental consent, for example. It's become very uh, important for us to take a stand against these kinds of legislations or any justifications of murder or disciplinary violence against women. Uh, and, uh, you know, the media plays a big part in this. Uh, when, and it's very frustrating when you see the victim blaming that happens uh, in, in the media. And when you see that the, the men who commit these acts are getting reduced sentences, they're getting misdemeanors in, instead of, uh, you know, being uh, uh, treated as, as the heinous criminal offense that it is to take a human life. So uh, we're, we're, unfortunately right now, we're, we're facing an upheld battle, especially without having female representation in office, but I'm positive that we will prevail because we must. Just uh, to clarify, you said that the UAE has looked at legislation around uh, the issue of honor killing. There was a complete review uh, and um, a, a big change in the legislations in the UAE that happened uh, a few months ago. And one of the changes was that there was a kind of a similar uh, law that existed that, that would uh, kind of give a, a reduced sentence uh, in cases of, of honor killing, etc. That, that was removed uh, in, in this review. Thank you for that. Uh, now, the generation coming up, uh, you, you're a mother, looking at young women in their teens and early 20s, how differently do they see the situation and what are their expectations and, and demands? Well, like my generation stood on the shoulders of giants, you know, those first uh, Kuwaiti women that uh, demanded uh, uh, more inclusion in the workplace and in, in studying abroad, you know, the, the first group of Kuwaiti women to, to get government scholarships and, and uh, continue their uh, university education abroad in Kuwait was in the 50s. And they, they had to face a lot of resistance in the terms of the, the way they, they dressed or entering the workplace or even being able to continue their education. So we uh, started from a much better place than they did. And uh, the generation that will follow us uh, will start from a, a better place than we did because they don't have to fight for their political rights the way we did. 
uh, I can see that they don't kind of struggle with the, the same accusations that demanding more rights for women is necessarily a Western import and it cannot be uh, an organic movement born out of you know, uh, frustration with, with social injustice based on gender. So I'm very optimistic when it comes to, to the upcoming generation and I'm optimistic because I can see that our male allies have increased in number and awareness about the importance of uh, gender diversity and inclusion and these issues of having a, a, a community where everybody feels safe and everybody feels like they have a fair shot is becoming much more important than, than, uh, than it was in the past. And and Madawi's list playing an important role, uh, creating a space for uh, some of these young women. And I'm sure you're you're hoping and expecting they'll move in and take advantage of that space. Well, let's let's hope that uh, that this space will will become more welcoming and uh, a lot more fair, so that we can encourage these young women to to run and to to be hopeful in a realistic. Uh, in a realistic assessment of the situation. Well, let's take 2030 as a benchmark, Alanud. In this decade, what are the advances for women you want to see, and how confident are you they can be achieved? Well, I'd like to see the conversation move on from the basics. And I would think that the absolute basics is protection of women from violence. I mean, I, I don't see how we can set the bar any lower than that. So I'm really hoping that this will not be a topic of conversation uh, in 2030. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, the, the, the idea of uh, having a, a parliament where no women get elected and a women's committee that is run by men is uh, something of an... Um, let's say, a, an anachronism or a, a, a funny throwback because it will be so unrealistic. Alanud, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. Alanud al Sharaik, Director of Ibtikar Strategic Consultancy. Her latest publication is called Love or Country, A Difficult Choice for Women in Kuwait, published by Arabian Humanities. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we now have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on arabdigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, Editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.